The following Mondo took place with Mountains and Rivers Order teachers and Sangha over Zoom at the outset of the 90-day fall training intensive of 2020. Mondo is the term for an informal teaching that allows teachers and students to dialogue openly on a given topic. The occasion began with Shugen Roshi speaking about the Buddha as a model of practice in historic, living, and archetypal terms. So long as it's personal, our feeling for the Buddha can help guide us in our practice. Next, Hogan Sensei spoke about the Zen practitioner's relationship with Dharma, and that's where the recording picks up. You'll also hear from Hojin Sensei addressing the importance of Sangha and a variety of voices taking up the themes of intention, vow, and aspiration. Thanks for listening. Hello. It's wonderful to see you. Um, I was thinking for the past 24 hours or so since this was my assignment, so to speak, of my relationship between taking treasure in the Dharma and all of the three treasures by extension and the Bodhisattva path, the Bodhisattva. Um, And it took me back to when I was in my young thirties and very successful by any external measurement and very, very unhappy. And um, of course I'm good at trying hard. So I kept trying harder and, the harder I tried, the more unhappy I became, <laughs> independent of the success or failure of what I was trying to do. And I've, I've said this story before, but I think it's worth repeating. It occurred to me, I wasn't the first person, I could not have been the first person in all of history uh, to face this dis-ease with myself, to face all of the, the pain that I saw around me and the ultimate dissatisfaction that seemed to be covered over in so many ways by how people lived and how, well, to me, it seemed very superficial in in what was put forth in any of the ways. And so that began my search. And, you know, when I connected with Zen practice, I immediately knew I was home, but I had no intellectual understanding of the teachings and no way to access them. I just knew to sit zazen, I felt a lot better. To, as I studied and encountered, and especially when I encountered the then eight gates of Zen, the call to trust myself, to rely on what motivated me and what aspiration I had, which needed to be explored, became stronger and stronger. And as I've continued to practice, um, my um, the fundamental perspective of the three treasures is at the heart, for me, of, the, of this practice in a very, very personal way. And so... This Sangho relies on our motivation, why we do this practice, why we want to practice the Sangho, what we aspire to, and, you know, in the course of practice, how we articulate that changes. But the heart of it may not be articulated 
well in an intellectual verbal sense, but it's a heartbeat. And beyond an aspiration, beyond a commitment, is the actuality of studying the path of the Buddha and our path, the Bodhisattva path. They're not different, of course. And then conscientiously using our life to deepen our insight via the practices into this path and to live out of it as a practice. So that for me is, is the Dharma. And all of the practices that are offered in the Sangho and are offered generally are making an offering to us to deepen our commitment and to actualize our commitment. And so we come to the Dharma relying on the awakened mind of the Buddha that we have gradually come to realize as our own through Dharma practice. And we come with the Sangha, relying on the Sangha support, which Hojin in a few moments will talk of, and our support to the Sangha as well. It always goes both ways. And our commitment, this commitment to the Dharma, which will naturally take us on the path of the Bodhisattva. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. They flow boundlessly everywhere. And wherever we look, we can see it, both the formal teachings and reality itself, another definition of Dharma. And the Dharma is simply the law of being. It's the law of reality. And much, much, much more in a sense. Because our imagination, no matter how big, can't hold it. And when we try and express it, we end up expressing it usually intellectually. And so many of the practices that we do as part of Ango are inviting us to express it in a different way not intellectually. I'm not disregarding the intellectual understanding. We're going to study all of the three treasures in a way from every perspective, and we should study it. And it's important that we understand and we don't fool ourselves into thinking that there is a reality out there, outside us, that is there and functional and something separate that we lay as that we label as Dharma practice in here, or perhaps do as a cookbook, as a recipe. There's only one Dharma. And by the way, if you're hearing dogs bark, welcome to home Dharma. Um, there's only one Dharma. And when we forget this, we create difficulties for ourselves and others in the name of getting what we want, sometimes calling it Dharma. But to realize there's only one Dharma and to practice that one Dharma means nothing is excluded. So one Dharma is, being, is what is being realized. One Dharma is being realized as our body and mind as you personally and in a different way, 
completely not personally. And yet those two things are not separate. Dharma practice of the Bodhisattva is not just looking at our ordinary perspective of ourself. While not excluding our self-centeredness, we usually see through our selfishness and our self-centered views. And that's in a way normal. When we gradually realize that everyone and everything is who I am and who and is who you are, we come to realize that everyone and everything is is ourself. And out of this comes a natural desire to help. The help is always within the relative circumstances of our life. We need to carefully recognize when we or others cause harm and as the circumstances are appropriate, do whatever we can to help. So not extend what is sometimes called idiot compassion to all beings in the name of the Buddha and the name of ourself. We need to recognize who are enemies of the Dharma. And that's not hard to do politically. And yet we also need to recognize that Buddha nature pervades the entire universe and every person. And so the question of how to help, of how to be respond with appropriate circumstances, of how to not fall in the trap that quote, people who are enemies, and by enemies, I mean those who create evil have their agenda, but not to hate them. Or if we do hate them, to understand that it's hate and will translate us to something harmful unless we let go of our attachment to them. So there's a lot in that statement. And the help, as I said, is always within the relative circumstances of our life. And to be careful, recognizing for all beings that we encounter and what helping actually means. It's not self-serving. What might be helpful in a presidential campaign might be to put our energy in a particular direction and acknowledge that another that when it comes from a different direction that harm is being caused it might be to speak up at another time but might be not to speak up another example is racial injustice and recognizing for me it means recognizing how i have to study carefully my mind of racism just as the political craziness needs study and how I can address it, given my life, giving my power, giving my assumptions, giving my blindness, and giving my wisdom. All of which you all have, all of which we all share. 
the path is ongoing. My own perspective and experience is that as we train in the Bodhisattva path, my life brings far beyond what I would have once imagined or thought as possible as my life. I could never imagine where my life would go and what would have meaning for me. Such meaning, such hopefulness, satisfaction, and love. And it also has brought humility, a good humility, and sometimes humiliation. And I think that's essential in practice, that when that's not there or not acknowledged, then we cause harm, whether we're a teacher or a serious student or anyone else. We can never know this. And yet it can know us in every cell in our body. And we can recognize that. It is the path of the Bodhisattva. It is aspiring to live as a Bodhisattva, which is not a test and doesn't fall into failure or success. It is simply Dharma practice. That's it. There's nothing else you can say about that that I think is completely true. practice in this way, we begin to naturally affect in small and larger ways the life around us, the life of others that is left less self-centered. And this may not be seen by ourselves, yet it affects others, sometimes in profound ways that we may never become aware of, sometimes in the smallest of ways that no one needs to know about. And of course, who would affects the most is ourself, even though, you know, to me, I'm the same jerk I was 30 years ago. Maybe that's true, but I hope not. And I do my best to practice all aspects of myself with awareness and openness and love. So it's just natural that this occurs Practicing in this way, practicing the Dharma with a deep dedication that is not so attached to the momentary fears and thoughts, to our habitual ways of conceiving ourselves, but seeing past that, trusting especially our Zazen to help us. And it's just natural that this occurs. It's like the morning dew, the life of a bodhisattva just naturally appears as we go on. I want to end with a homage to the Bodhisattva. I've changed a bit, and my interpretation may not be fully traditional, but I think it's applicable. If but a single drop of the nectar of your name, your name, your individual name, were to fall upon the Bodhisattva's ears. They would be filled with the sound of the Dharma for countless lives. Wondrous three jewels, may the brilliance of your renowned being 
bring perfect happiness everywhere. This is the path we aspire to. It's not a path of completion or incompletion. It's a path. It's a path that in one sense is beginningless and endless. And in another sense, we practice from right where we are. And we let it go from there. And so I hope to join with you in this ango as we practice together, as we practice the three treasures, and as we practice as a sangha. Thank you. Hojin Sensei will speak to the sangha. Hi, Sangha. <laughs> oh, good. It's nice to see you move a little bit, that I know you're alive on the other end and we're not still in Zazenkai. Yeah, great. And, um, yeah, so look, look, look. We're right here, the Sangha treasure. All these, all of us in our places our spaces, see who we're with. Um, and this is our community. And these are the people we can start with to, you know, we all come into this path. I think we would agree um, a little confused. And so we have to start at that point point. Um, and so Sangha is both a support, but also, I think, um, what else? It's an obligation in a way to help each other um, get clearer out of that confusion. And so if we just look around, we can know Anyone we look at starting here is suffering. Every face we look at is suffering. And we can look around here and see people we've been helped by, and some might even not, not even know. Already, I have felt that several times in this session. Um, just being online, help, helped by my community. And so the, in the earliest, in the early tradition with the Buddha, Sangha is, is the community, is the practitioners of the Dharma. But, you know, this is a vast, you know, the more you start looking at Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and these treasures, there are many facets to them, many ways to, um, investigate them, what you can do. Um, so, um, <clears throat> so there's this Sangha, the community, and then I think there's an, in, it's relational, it's connected, it's how we're interwoven. So there's also our own Sangha with our own, within our own body, that's a Sangha. How do we get along with ourself? The parts of ourselves. Are, there, are they parts? Our body. 
This is our, these are our sangha. This is our sangha. These are the things we're in relationship with. And then there's the Dharma Sangha, the people that we practice with. And then we have more Sanghas. There's our family Sangha, the people we work with. There's the world Sangha. And within those Sanghas, each of us have different roles, different places. And most of us, I think, are, you know, want to be, in some ways, are, so, we need to be solitary in some ways. Some of us see us as, a, as lone wolves, but, and Sangha is sort of like the hardest treasure, right? How many would say, like, ooh, Sangha is like the hardest treasure? It's hard to, we fear the other. Can we, can we actually live in peace? Can we live in peace? So you are in, in different sanghas. Here we're together as our community. And right next to you, you might have your family with you. So how do you operate? How do you, how do you fulfill your vows, your intentions, your aspirations within these different sanghas. What are they? Um, And, you know, we can also look around and see we've had things broken with each other. We've harmed each other. And, um, so what kind of commitment is needed? What, what kind of trust do we need to find in ourselves and with each other to be together, to develop ourselves together? You know, many of us who became students as we cross that threshold, what do you say? Please guide me in my practice. Who might you be speaking to? Who are you speaking to? What kind of guidance would you, are you asking for? And when you get it, what happens? Do we just want the, you know, fluffy and <laughs> warm, fuzzy? Well, Compassion isn't always warm and fuzzy, and we need each other for that, that cutting part too, that part that says, no more bullshit. You didn't know I spoke French. (laughs) No more. No more. We can't do this with each other anymore. Right? So this is, we can't do that on our own, or can you? So these are the questions we'll investigate. How is our, our relatedness going? What is Sangha for you? It's very humbling, right, to know we're everything. Like the moment we want to point and we don't like something about someone, we have to know we can be that too. That's the hardest thing about 
us as people. You know, we're, you, you know, we're the perpetrator, we're the victim, we're the, we're all of it. We're all of it. All of that lives in us. So what is a practice life? What is our vows? What are our commitments? How do we stay to the true north? Okay, thanks, Sangha. <laughs> Thank you, Hojin and Hogan. Um, so this is where we'll just open it up. Uh, we have a little, little under an hour, and um, perhaps the best thing to do is just use the chat to raise your hand. Hopefully everybody knows how to do that. And... Um, and then we'll recognize you. And if you want to, you know, speak to a particular teacher, fine. Otherwise, we'll just open it up. And to Hogan and Hojin, please just, you know, everybody just, each of us just jump in. Okay. So, and this is really, you know, on anything that we've spoken about or just anything as you're thinking about Ango and your practice over the next three months and you'd like to ask a question or voice something or um, get it out. And remember that your question is for, is everyone's too. Somebody else is going to relate to it. So, so Mm -hmm. jump in there. I have a question that came up uh, last night, actually, um, which is uh, around effort. Um, And, uh, you know, there's so much going on um, right now just in terms of being alive. Um, uh, So much pain, so much suffering. Um, a pandemic, an election, all these things. And I guess the question for me is how to enter that um, in a way that feels wholehearted and also in a way that um, feels... I don't know, it's so scary to, to, to go full throttle at a time that already feels full throttle. Um, maybe that's the only, maybe that's the only way. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm supposed to ask a specific person this question. No, you're, you're fine. You're fine. Okay. Well, Jacob, I would, I'll just jump in. I would, you know, a pandemic is a word. Right, an election is a word that represents universes, right? So, so in asking the question, how can you wholeheartedly step forward into an election? What does that actually mean, you know, um, to you? You know, what do you what do, what does election mean to you? What is it that you want to step into so that it it doesn't it doesn't it isn't vague? It may be uncertain. There may be not not uh, not knowing, but that you know we have to sort of get beyond looking at things i mean they they are big, 
But when they stay big like that, there's kind of no place to enter because it's not on the ground yet. And so with anything that we want to enter, you know, we can talk about practice, but that's not practicing. Right. So how do you enter wholeheartedly into practice? Well, what does that mean now? What does that mean now? And so in a similar way, if you think of something that you concerns you and that you want to enter into, look for a door. You know, the door's got to be connected to something, to a house, to a room, to a particular effort, to a cause, you know. Yeah, and because you were speaking of, you know, so much pain, you you know, how there's pain and things like that, it's just, you know, you... I think Joanna Macy was speaking about just like how to kind of, even though you don't know the outcome to live in a way that you're kind of full, like, like would want to uh, be in accord with your, what you value with your aspirations, with your, your, your vows. So that if, if it doesn't work out, at least, you know, you, you put yourself behind what, what you felt uh, inclined to um, want to support or or enter. Um, I I just want to add something to that. Um, situations where I can feel overwhelmed by suffering. Uh, I take a small step. I take a small step in what seems to be, uh, perhaps superficially, a direction that will help. And in in a case like this, one small step, one way, is to study the first noble truth and what actually is the suffering that universally affects us all as a beginning and then also to enter Ango and take some piece of that and really study it. Maybe Zazen, it may be one of the aspects that are being brought forth as a Bodhisattva or any of the other many, many ways in. And so to narrow down so that as our fears arise and seem to overwhelm us, we can put them aside for the moment and concentrate on the practice that we are doing, on the awareness that we are doing, and bring it back to that. And usually, over time, things change. Our mind changes. And we have a shift in perspective. It's not that suffering just magically goes away or will ever go away, but you will see through it as you practice it, meaning see what's actually there, which is not a single thing. And yet our attachment to it seems to give it life. So start, start very concretely with something that you relate to within the ango, within the practice and use that as a doorway into your own suffering.
I'll just jump in here to call on people. Uh, Joshin. Um, so this is a follow-up to Hogan's um, statement, which uh, I found really interesting. Um, but any teacher could answer it if you want. Um, it's, um, Hogan said that we can let go of our attachment to hate um, and I think therefore avoid negative action. And um, I was interested because I'm not sure if I hate anybody. I, I'm I certainly feel intense dislike, um, but I feel like the growth of either intense dislike or hatred comes about through attachment. And um, I don't, I don't, I, I guess I'm, I want more clarification on how you could have hate and also have it. It seemed like, it seemed like you were saying that you could have hatred, but you could not be attached to hatred and I, and I don't know what how to do that because I feel like when, by the time you start getting really into that um, emotion into that feeling that that like it's all over is that the attachment to it has become like a really big deal now um, so I'm not sure if I misunderstood or how to work with this or you know just any any more words on that would be helpful because it almost felt like for a second like oh that means I could hate so and so and as long as I don't attack and do anything negative about it I'm, I'm okay and that doesn't seem right either so um, so more on that would be would be helpful thank you well I'll I'll comment on it and then invite Hogan and Chugan to to comment um, I don't think we're free of hate. I'm not free of hate. Um, I don't think it's likely that most of us will be completely free of the feeling of having the feeling of hate or any other feeling. Um, there are certain feelings I'd like to cultivate and certain feelings I'd like not to emphasize in my life. Hate, passion, one of the three poisons, um, I don't want to live in. And so I practice the paramitas. I practice the paramita patience. Um, and I live in difficult circumstances. I'm not going to describe them in the particular somewhat difficult circumstances because I live with a three-generation family, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not always harmonious, to say the least. Um, so I watch for hate very carefully, not because I don't have it. When that, that doesn't come up, but in seeing it, I can acknowledge it. And that's really important to, to see it in, in that seeing, to, to know that it's there. And then to simply let it go. And simply let it go does not mean to repress it or push it away. It means in the full acknowledgement of it, I can let it go. Or sometimes the most I can do is devalue it. Or sometimes the most I can do is acknowledge that it's there and it's not in any way worked through. Uh, and, and wherever it is, that's where I start my practice from, with it. And uh, I'm very patient because I'm, I'm a human being. Um, and so as we all are, we, we are allowed to have the full spectrum of human emotions. 
And at the moment that we cut out parts of ourselves, of those emotions, we are excluding others, both others within ourselves and others out there. So it comes down to an awareness. So, I, you know, in a way, I'm using a shortcut of non-attachment, which you used. But as we know, there's much more to that. And the work about that is deep. And the more attached we are, and the longer it has gone on and created its own karma, the harder it is, incredibly harder it is to, to let it go. But we don't have to co complete it today. We just have to work with the awareness that we have now. And maybe we have hatred, feelings to uh, in a particular way, the whole day or days or months without once realizing it. And then we realize it at one point. That's the practice. We keep working at it and we keep working at it with no expectation. Because all of us, all of our being is all of our being. So I hope that helps. Hojun, Shugan, please. No, I'm good. We know you're good. Hojun, <laughs> you're muted. I think that you also identified yourself as good. Yeah. I was just wondering if the Sangha had anything to say. Um, I will say that we will be talking about this. We'll be addressing this during the next three months because of the text we're studying, because it is the path of the Bodhisattva, which means we gotta we got to face the things that, you know, bind us. And that whole spectrum of aversion, anger, impatience, irritation, annoyance, judgment, hatred, and so on. You know, there's a reason why it's considered one of the poisons. So, we will not, um, we will be coming back to this. So let's go next to Myoho. Um, Hogan spoke yesterday of Mara as a bodhicitta. That floored me, and I've never felt such an opening of my heart and such a sense of humility. Um, and yet, we have to keep turning towards our true north, to Bodhicitta itself. So my question is, how do I keep remembering Mara as a Bodhicitta and as a guide? And when my intention flags and fails, not to turn and let Mara become a channel, an instrument for my harming others, how do I keep re remembering that Mara can be a guide and a Bodhicitta rather than a funnel for my negativity? Hogan, you said it. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> well, um, it's a dangerous practice. So I'm going to speak personally here. I'm not representing Zen Mountain Monastery. I'm going to speak directly out of my own practice. I consider President Trump to be Mara, to be an incarnation of Mara. And I have to constantly remind myself, how can I take what is before me because he's, you know, endlessly before me. Uh, Eho, I'm continuing a long recuperation, so we watch 
the political news. And Mara is on constantly, and she just shuts shuts off the sound. She won't even listen to it. Um, that's one way. Um, and understand that Mara is, in one sense, the enemy. And we have to know the enemy. We have to know who does evil, from my perspective. And I think from the path of the Bodhisattva. Um, and how do I take that, that evil, that my thoughts of this person, and turn it towards the Dharma? How do I actually use it to, to help me awaken, to help me be kind? So I look at, so, so Mara is a dangerous um, person, if you want to frame it that way, if a dangerous bodhisattva. And because Mara is so dangerous, I have to be very careful with it. And I have to recognize that anything that comes along can hurt me or help me. And what do you think the difference is between those two things, between Mara helping me and hurting me? I think that's an actual question, Myoho. Um, how can I use it? It won't hurt me if I can... Um, actually, for me, it's using the help of the Sangha to guide me so that I recognize how to use Upaya, but I can't do it on my own. I need the guidance of each and every one of you for that. Absolutely. We all do. And that's why there are three treasures. And so each of us may be in a different place, unique to our karma and our life, and needs to rely on the help that we need at any given place of practice. And so there's no problem here. We use the help that we need to help us on this path. And that's it. And, you know, we gradually can begin to turn to see everything in our life, every little detail in our life as a way to help us on this path rather than as an obstacle. I'm, I'm recovering from pretty significant knee surgery and I can walk, but not very well. And so anything that's in the path, a slipper, a kid's toy can be an obstacle or it could be a way to pay attention and to gently do my best to remove it and to acknowledge the love that I have for the children in the house and their freedom to not be a fixated adult that everything belongs in its place and that's, that's my life. So that's, you know, a tiny example, but a very important example because the more I do that, the more it becomes alive. And we can all do that. We just start from where we are. It doesn't matter where we are. Yeah, I think I would just add to that that, um, you know, it, it's it's good to practice the, the, the slipper in your way <laughs> because it really can trip you up. 
but it's also a much smaller obstacle. And that some of these manifestations of Mara are literally dangerous and are actually destroying lives and maybe destroying your life or those around you. And so I just want to say, you know, one of the things when we talk about the Dharma, because we must and we need to, and it is aspirational. So we're always, you know, sort of um, um, thinking, you know, sort of letting ourselves be larger than we might experience ourselves in the moment to also appreciate that some of the things that Hogan was just talking about are the most difficult things, right? To actually love your enemy, right? To actually have compassion towards somebody who not just, you know, ideologically you find difficult, but might actually be putting your life at risk. I just want to say this is not easy, right? And so just to acknowledge that. And that people, you know, each of us occupies this world in a different place. And and some of us live in, in places that are much more protected and others much less so. And so the, the truth is true. The practice is true. And the principles with a slipper, in a way, are not entirely different than something much larger. And that's why it's so important to practice the smaller, the smaller things, our smaller enemies, if you will. But just to acknowledge, you know, that it is humbling because it can be so, um, it can be so, so difficult. And really, it, it takes us to the de- deepest parts, I think, of what spiritual practice is about in many ways. That's why the Bodhisattva path is so powerful, right? It sounds good. It is good. <laughs> but it'll kick your butt, right? I get my butt kicked all the time, right, by this world. And so I just want to make, I just wanted to, make sure that we're not not imagining this as a, you know, it's one thing to talk about. It's another thing to do it. I just wanted to add, actually the slipper is a wonderful metaphor because that's where we slip. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Joe, do you want to take the next question? Find the unmute button there. (laughs) Um, I was reading over the uh, 37 verses, chanting them, and number 29 in particular really kicks my butt. Uh, knowing that the profound, knowing that through profound insight, thoroughly grounded in sustained calm, disturbing emotions are completely conquered. To practice the concentration that utterly transcends the four formless states is the practice of the bodhisattva. I just kind of, kind of approach, I'm approaching from two parts. So the first part being the that this thing in its entirety rather terrifies me and to have a brain at times where I can so much levels of panicky type thing on how close they are to me. And uh, once I get a certain add up of these things, it's more, you know, I'm shutting down, I don't want and it's I'm nowhere near being that sustained calm type of bodhisattva. Then the second part of that is what the heck are the four formless states? 
Yeah. So we'll we'll get to this, you know, during the ongo. He's talking at this point, he's talking about the paramitas and about the the paramita of, of jhana or concentration. Four formless states are four um, different meditative states that the Buddha spoke about as being part of the part of the development, but not the um, you know, not ultimately our our freedom or our awakening. So um, I would just look at this in a sense that, it, you know, that Zazen has no fixed form and that we have lots of different experiences, you know, some difficult, but many very positive ones and very profound ones. And they're all impermanent. Right. And so we tend to, in our culture, very, you know, really be looking for the experience that's going to, you know, save us or deliver us or, you know, in, you know, um, seduce us. And it's really, you know, that 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 all of these experiences, even though they may be very illuminating, are impermanent. And so we shouldn't make a home there. And that's because they have like a sensory or we're expecting to have some sort of a feedback of some sort. Or not. Mm. Or not. In other words, we can in our mind, we can attach to anything, even the idea of nothing. Mm. Okay, Fuyu. Yes, I had a question about um, how to uh, practice responding to harm that's being done. And I'm very interested in the 37 verses, which seem to be all about this. Um, And so I know we're going to be talking about this, studying this all ongo, but I have questions about really practically how to approach this, how to find a way in. Um, for example, um, today I I did the Zazenkai and I'm sitting at home. Um, so I sat all day and outside my windows, um, literally all day long, there have been these these loud vehicles uh, I know this goes on in a lot of cities, and our city is having a big problem with it of people driving illegal vehicles on the streets, um, disregarding all the traffic laws, kind of terrorizing people. Um, and in our city, it seems to be people who come from outside our city. They come in on weekends, and we've we've had some serious injuries because of this. So it's a very serious problem. Um, so all day long, as I'm sitting the Zazenkai, I, I've been hearing the sounds of these vehicles out there and also sirens, a lot of sirens, which, which is, you know, maybe people get used to that in New York, but this is a small city and it, it's worse than it used to be. So, so I'm tr- I was trying to practice this, you know, hearing this all day while I'm doing Zazen and returning to my practice and looking for a place of compassion. You know, it makes me so angry what's being done because it's harming people. And um, trying to be aware of the suffering that must be behind that behavior. I can only imagine the suffering that would lead someone to devote their life to that that kind of behavior. Um, 
but also feeling very angry about it and very helpless. So I just found that the, today this was this th- kind of thing that was given to me as something that I can do the practice, the practices that we're going to be studying all on go, but finding it very challenging even to find a, a way in other than, you know, since we're doing Zazen Kai and I'm doing Zazen of, you know, seeing what's coming up in my mind and returning to my practice and seeing and returning in my practice, being aware of anger and hatred and also compassion. Um, so I, I wanted to um, ask for some advice about this. Oh, well, <laughs> I feel like I'm speaking too much. Um, I live in a three-generation house with two very large barking dogs and cats who demand the authority to have all doors open and closed behind them when they want it, and three screaming, endlessly screaming, especially without school, grandchildren, and... Um, at least in my immediate facility, no um, easy way to shut that out uh, or to avoid it. Um, so my solution, I'm sure there's a very good dharmic solution and I could say it, but I have to tell you, my solution is um, to put, is to use a white noise machine and turn it on very loud. Um, and it's, it's what allows Aho and I to sleep. Um, sometimes I, I also have a program that I can attach with my earphones. So um, I spent the money for Boise, Boise, if it's pronounced correctly, earphones, which block sound. And what I hear is through this program, white noise. And I simply forget, I mean, the surroundings go away. Now, maybe that's not the Bodhisattva path. And I would invite Shugan and Hojin to to offer that. Uh, But for me, it's the Bodhisattva path because it allows me to do Zazen in the most difficult of circumstances, or at least difficult circumstances. I wasn't really asking about the noise, though. It's more about the the fear of the violence of this. I mean, people have been injured by these vehicles and more are going to be as long as this goes on and there doesn't seem to be any way our city can stop it. So when I hear this noise, that's what's upsetting me and being angry about people who are causing this harm. And so trying to understand how to do the practice of the Bodhisattva with this. Well, there's a lot there for you, but I would just say in brief, you know, we, we t- in Buddhism, we talk about how the mind, there's mental pr- proliferation, you know, that there's a seed, a sound, and then the mind pr- proliferates so that it brings in what you know about that sound, the news, the what you the reports, the injuries and so on, the reactions by the city, all of that begins to proliferate in the mind. And then there's the emotional response which is fear or anger or resentment or whatever it might be. 
And so to, to see that as, you know, that this, the beginning was just a sound, right? And although it may be connected to all of those other things, in that moment, what's happening in your mind is just that sound. And so just as a way to begin, right, or to start is to just turn towards the experience of your mind in that moment with that sound and realize it's just a sound, you know, it's 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 not quite the same, but oftentimes in session, when lots of people are here, <clears throat> one day somebody will come in and talk about how beautiful the bird song is outside the window. And the next day they'll come in and, and be really upset because their person sitting next to them is breathing too loud. Now, both of these are sounds, right? One we find pleasant and the other we find, you know, annoying. And so you know, it's a good example of how when the mind starts to identify and, you know, have a position, right, then it, the sound becomes something more, the mind proliferates. And so to try and just keep your awareness right with the sound as it comes and goes, right? So just as a beginning, right, that's not, that's not all, and there's, that's not enough in a sense, but as a way just to sort of sit on that seat, and turn your attention and, and begin working with it at this, at this sort of elemental level. Because whatever happens next, as we sort of take that further, you know, into responsibility, for instance, that basis is, is the basis from which we can act, right? Because it helps us to be clear. So you... So I brought this up in uh, in the small group in the in the breakout last night, and um, practicing by myself is very different than practicing with the sangha. You know, to be able to go to the temple or to the monastery and be on the schedule, and then to have to create that myself. And I'm aware of you know, resistance sometimes of like, you know, if I get up in the morning, be ready to sit. And then I experience a sensation in my eyes. And the next thought is, Oh, I'm tired. I need to go back to sleep, not to sit Zazen. And, you know, looking at the Ango as a whole and, you know, needing still to fill out my commitment to um, bring myself to work with this resistance. And, you know, I, I think often of a quote that you used in a talk some years ago, I went by Thoreau, I went to the woods because I wish to live deliberately, front only those things that are essential. And this is the only life I have. And so, you know, you spoke last Sunday, I believe about a life of constancy. So to cultivate that, and I just wondering if you could, somebody, one of you, shooting somebody could speak a little bit more about working by yourself with your practice and the ongo and your ongo commitments. It reminds me of a story that um, one of our students told of during a session, she was rooming with Kaijun, who was living right off of the Zendo. And Kaijun is, for those who don't know, is a ordained monastic, lived with us for many years, and 
passed away some years ago here, but at that time she was probably certainly in her 70s. And um, she got up quite early during session to sit. And she got up and her roommate, this other student, was still sleeping. And she tried to rouse her and she said, no, no, I want to sleep. And she said, look, when you're dead, you can sleep for the rest of your life. You should get up and sit. And so that may or may not work for you. But to, to in those moments, one is, you know, to try and nip the bud of that stream of thought, right? Because once it gets going, it starts to build a case, you know, for all the reasons why you should stay in bed. And so, and I've gone through that too, you know, before I was living here and some days when I live here. And, you know, it's just the power of the mind, that proliferating mind. So just to sort of jump in there and just get up, you know, before your mind has that chance to start building its, its, um, its view. Um, and then sometimes to remember, you know, to bring to mind, you know, what is important to you, how you feel. For instance, when you get up and sit and then your day begins that way, you know, how this day is a part of this larger arc of your life and your journey and what you want, what you're creating and developing and what you're, you know, committing to. So that's where we need to use. I mean, this is part of bodhicitta is we use the power of our conceptual mind, our thinking mind to remember, to remember, bring to mind those things that will help us. Remember that mindfulness, the word mindfulness, sati means in part to recall, to remember. And so, but in all of those actions, whatever we do, we're engaging, right? We're engaging. Whereas if we don't, then we sort of assume a more passive role than the habits that we've developed, which already come with strength, right? will tend to dominate. Since we show on. All right. Um, so I have a question. Hojin, maybe you would be the one to kindly <laughs> address this matter, um, if you would. Um, my question is about the Bodhisattva vow. And um, basically, like, it feels like the more I... Um, let me just change my view here. Thank you. The more I um, see into how I'm creating my own suffering, the more insight I have into the reality that everybody else out there who's a suffering sentient being is also creating their own suffering. And so how, as a bodhisattva, can I actually do anything to save um another being. And if I really wanted to make a difference, shouldn't I just like roll up my sleeves and go like, you know, register voters or do something that's more tangible and demonstrable because um, that, that subtler work is each person's to do for themselves. So any thoughts on this? Well, I would just say, um, since you're, you know you're suffering and you have a path that you may have 
um, had some evidence works um, that if you can understand and enter your suffering um, fully, to then you will be able to do absolutely meet someone else in their own, knowing exactly what it takes to find your way um, to relieve it. So to, I think as we were speaking, to use exactly that suffering to get more clarity, more clear, see more clearly what's causing it, what, what's causing your suffering. And um, see, you know, do, do, can you be with it? That's one question. Are you able to be, face your suffering more? Mm-hmm. Are you? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so something's working. Yeah. So that's something you can trust. Yeah. And and have you relieved some of your suffering? Definitely. So something's working. Yeah. So we're, but, then, but then when we frame the vow as saving all sentient beings, mm-hmm. I, I'm seeing into my suffering and I feel like, yes, my practice is totally transforming my life right. and it's completely relieving my suffering. Right. But I don't know if it's doing anything for Eduardo. Well, so when I come to you with mine, yeah. what did you say to me other, the day when I did? And you said to me, I really feel what you're saying. And that was just such such a relief for me to be met there. I, I totally get uh-huh. where you're, I can feel what you're feeling. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, and that for me was like such a help. Like I didn't feel alone. I felt supported. Um, I felt met. Um, I didn't feel like a crazy person anymore like just out there on my own, you were, you were like, yeah, I know that. And you shared something about your own life. And that made me also feel connected. Um, so that's how it happens. It's not, it's sometimes not huge. It doesn't, it's not a big, like going out to get people to do. It's like, for some of us, it's just these little details it is in the details, really, of, um, you know, how do you let the cat out? Do you get up and go like, God, or do you just get up and let the cat out, you know? Um, so we can suffer through it, or we can just do it. Do. Yeah. Thank you. And oh, if you have more to say, say it. No, I was just thinking to say say you again, um, what he was working with. You know, I would say you sometimes my head doesn't want to, but my my body has another experience. So sometimes my head I get to the cushion on my own and my head's saying, like, oh, I'm really tired. I should go back to bed. But actually my body loves its seat. Like I feel so happy sitting in my cushion and my head's got this other, other, other agenda. And usually that one's not so good. Like, you know, 
but our body is actually sometimes more truthful. Most of the time it is. It really knows it. So sometimes check in at, at other, that's what I mean. You have other Sangha members internally to um, call upon and see how, how they're doing. <laughs> I, think, I think that's my experience too of like, you know, having this like struggle to get to the cushion and I get there, it's like, oh. Yeah. But you get there sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to um, one add to Sean's comment that you know it's one of the things I so value about the sangha, our immediate sangha, but also the maha sangha is because is that when I hear sometimes about what people are doing, I think, oh, I'm so glad you're doing that because I can't do that, right? Where you're putting yourself and and the the fact that you want to do that, you can do that, your circumstances allow you to do that because I'm doing this. And so it's like, that's why we need a community, right? That's why we need each other. And there are things that we, we do all come together for and we're trying to work together on. But then in the details of how that works, you know, it's necessarily we're going to have to do that differently. And so that's why I so appreciate that there are people, you know, if we have enough people in the village, then maybe things will take get taken care of. Okay, we're closing in on 9 p.m., but we have a few more blue hands. Uh, Gene? Yeah, I- I just wanted to say I had an interesting dream a few weeks ago. Can you hear me? Can you hear? Yeah. Um, Where Donald Trump came to me in the dream. He was crying. And he asked me to comfort him. And uh, which I did. So maybe uh, we need to find our own internal Donald Trump comfort it. And by doing that, we may comfort the man who may be acting out of suffering and causing us, him and us, all sorts of problems. So I just want to say that. Thank you. We'll um, go to Greg, moving right along. Hi, I was um, struck and a little bit puzzled by verse number two. Uh, In my native land, waves of attachment to friends and kin surge. Hatred for enemies rages like fire. The darkness of stupidity, not caring what to adopt or avoid, thickens. And... um, All that sounds pretty familiar in our current political climate. But then he says, to abandon my native land, the practice of a bodhisattva. And I was hoping somebody could help clarify that for me, because abandoned to me, it sounds like he's giving up and walking away, which is not what I consider the act of a bodhisattva who's role is to engage and and help. So what does he mean by abandon my native land? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just say a word about that, um, Greg. That's why we need to study this. 
is because these teachings typically are very compact, right? They're very succinct. It's just like the pith. And so that's why traditionally these teachings are presented with commentary, right? And the commentaries give a teacher the opportunity to sort of expand upon and pull out the inner meaning of each of these verses. But I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to say up front at the beginning of this is that there will be verses in this that may you may find upsetting and may seem to run counter to your understanding of what the Bodhisattva path is or should be, of what practice is. It may seem to be sort of talking against your life, like you should leave your, your home and, and all of your family and loved ones. And so what I would say just generally as a way to begin is one allow for the possibility that there there is meaning in the words that may not be clear yet, right? And that's why they, they need to be sort of commented on and pulled out. And also, bef- <coughs> can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can, can hear. you hear me? Yeah. Okay. My internet was a little wobbly. Um, to... You know, rather than because oftentimes in reading the Dharma, we'll encounter things that are difficult or or just don't seem right or to make sense. And rather than just rejecting them, just hold, sort of pause, and allow for the possibility that there may be an understanding that you know we we have yet to sort of get to, but we can. And also just look at it a different way. See if you can look at that and and think of it not so literally. Like, what might the author be saying that might speak to you? Because what he's talking about in every verse is the path of the Bodhisattva, which essentially comes down to some form of attachment. All right? So maybe I'll just say that much for now. But um, um, because some of the verses are quite stark in terms of what they're really um, sort of presenting us with, with the practice of a Bodhisattva as being. And so that's why we will um, go into it more. Shall we take one more, Michael? Galpani? Shugan, you spoke of being really specific with intentions and emphasizing saying it out loud. I wondered what, what does that really look like? like when do you do you do you encourage in making this part of liturgy and dedicating the merit making a part of that or is this you know before embarking on a particular activity i just uh, i wanted to really i wanted to know what you say about really really specifically doing this and um yeah well Understanding that intention is karma, and that when you bring forth an intention in your mind, that begins to create karma. When you express it, that gets stronger. When you act upon it, it's stronger still. And so the power of the mind is that you can, for instance, you can feel gnarly. You can feel, you know, cranky, ill-tempered. And you can bring forth the intention to open your heart to compassion. And that's completely genuine. You don't feel compassionate. You don't feel open-hearted, but you want to. 
And so you recognize exactly where you're at and you have an aspiration, right, as a practitioner. And so you give that a voice and something changes inside of you, even if it's very subtle. It doesn't mean that suddenly you feel generous and magnanimous, but but just saying those words has to has to create a space within you that might not have been there the moment before. And it also, as a kind of declaration, right, it makes it more tangible. You hear your own voice saying those words. It becomes more conscious. It becomes more volitional. And so, I mean, we'll be talking about this during the ongo, but really there's no there's no particular rule and there's no limit on this. You know, when when we bow before we eat, we've already done the meal gotha if we have, but at that moment you can you can offer that food, you can wish as you look at your own food that every person everywhere has their hunger sated today. That when you're drinking something that's delicious, you can wish that every person, wherever they might be who's thirsty, would quench their thirst today. It's not giving that food to them, right? And so how that helps somebody else, we can't measure that. How it helps you, you will know, right? Because you'll be experiencing it. And that begins to open the window into how how powerful the mind is and how, how you have endless opportunities to be transforming your consciousness, not just in moments, not of your choosing where suddenly you have an insight right? Or you release something, right? But but quite deliberately, volitionally, you bring something to mind, right? That is that is part of your bodhisattva, you know, commitment. And so, you know, in formal liturgy, we're being exposed to this all the time, right? So the goth of atonement, taking refuge, that's teaching us, right, how to begin doing that. Right when we chant the four bodhisattva vows, we chant the four measurables. Those practices are teaching us how how to begin to use our mind in a way that we can continue using in those very powerful practices, but also now begin to kind of bring that more spontaneously into your into your everyday. Okay, maybe I'll just for teaching. So. I think we are at the end of our evening together. And um, thank you for all for being here. Um, Hojin was going to just um, uh, end with doing some chanting on our behalf, since we can't all chant together aloud. Um, Hogan, did you want to say anything before we finish up? No, just uh, other than how much I appreciate the Sangha and the the coming forth, uh, whether or not someone has asked a question or not isn't what's so important. It's the, particip- the participation, and we all share in all the questions and work on it ourselves, and um, that helps me a great deal. So for the most selfish of reasons, I appreciate it. And I hope uh, it helps you as well. Thank you. May all beings be free from suffering and the root of suffering. 
May all beings know happiness and the root of happiness. May all beings live in sympathetic joy, rejoicing in the happiness of others. May all beings live in equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and delusion. May all beings be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May all beings know happiness and the root of happiness. May all beings live in sympathetic joy, rejoicing in the happiness of others. May all beings live in equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and delusion. May all beings be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May all beings know happiness and the root of happiness. May all beings live in sympathetic joy, rejoicing in the happiness of others. May all beings live in equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and delusion. Good night, everyone. Thank Good night, you. and thank you for coming and Hopefully we'll see you tomorrow at the opening, okay? Yeah. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good everyone. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thanks so much, everybody. Sleep well. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live-streaming all Dharma Talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.